Our reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. Let me read that for us. There, Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You may be seated. I'm Daniel, in case you're new or visiting, want to also welcome you here along with Jake. If you haven't already opened up your Bible, I do want to encourage you to do that. Please open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be working our way through those first eight verses. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot one at home, there's one at the Connect table at the back. You're welcome to head back there. At the front of the Bible, there'll be a table of contents. You can find 1 Corinthians in there. We are in chapter 6 this morning. Well, let me pray, and then we'll jump into our text. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you and right now just acknowledge our need for you to speak to us. Father, we want to take our cues, our way of living, our way of thinking, our way of being from you. God, would you help us now by your spirit come and and transform us. God, help us to be more like Jesus in all that we do. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you are new, let me tell you that we are in a series right now, working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is, this is actually a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a, a city very much like Vancouver. And you see, Paul planted this church, but he's been away now for a little bit of time, and he gets a report that the church is not behaving, it's not living the way the church is supposed to live. The church has actually begun to look a lot like the city around it. And so so Paul's going to write this letter, and he's going to tell the church, he's going to remind the church of what it looks like to actually be the church of God in Corinth. But what I want us to really think about is how Paul goes about doing this. You see, Paul doesn't just write to the church and tell them, stop it, as much as that is my approach to many things. That's that's not what Paul does. He, He doesn't even just write to them and give them a bunch of rules. That's actually not his focus. Paul's priority, actually, what he wants to do is remind the church of who they are. For the past two Januaries, my wife and I have read a children's version of The Pilgrim's Progress. 
This, this book, The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, is actually one of the most read books outside of the Bible of all time. And if you're not familiar with the story, I'm not giving away any spoilers because it's been out for 350 years. But basically, the story follows a man named Christian. He's a pilgrim. And he's traveling from his own city, the city of destruction, to the celestial city. Now, on his journey, Christian is going to encounter various trials. And so God, to help him along, actually gives him a bunch of supplies that he might need. My question is this. Do you know what supply is most valuable to him? It's a scroll. It's a scroll. Now, just think about that for a second. He, he will face lions and dragons and giants. He, he will have to cross raging rivers. He will be locked up in jail. He will have to travel through valleys of great darkness and terror. And yet it's a scroll that is most valuable to him. Because on that scroll is a reminder of his identity. On that scroll is a reminder of who he is. There's a reminder of the fact that the great king has already purchased his salvation. There's a reminder that that same king awaits him in the celestial city with arms wide open, who longs to be with him. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is trying to equip the church, equip us with that same scroll. He's trying to help us understand our new identity. He's trying to remind us of how God has saved us, and he wants to to show us the certainty of our future. And so this week, we're we're actually going to look at how our identity affects the way we deal with conflict. We're going to see three things. We're going to look at the exalted identity of the church. We will see the exalted identity of Christ. And we will also see the exalted identity of the Christian. But before we look at that first point, I, wanna, I want us to actually look at the situation that's going on here in Corinth. So, so look, at, look at verse 1, because I'm worried that at first reading, we might be tempted to think this is some kind of extreme situation that really doesn't have any bearing on our lives. But that, that's not the case. So look, look at verse 1. Paul writes this, When you... When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So what's happened is that there's arisen a conflict within the church in Corinth. And and these two Christians have actually decided to take each other to court. Now, going to court was actually quite a common occurrence in Corinth. One, uh, one author, he puts it this way. He's writing in and around the time of Paul, and he says this about Corinth. He says, After dinner drinks comes mockery. After mockery, filthy insult. After insult, a lawsuit. After the lawsuit, a verdict. After the verdict, shackles, the stocks, and a fine. That, that's kind of how, how quickly things would progress. Who needs dinner and a movie? When you got dinner, lawyer up, I'll see your butt in court. That's, that, that's the way it works in court. And look, that's the way he describes what would happen if someone offended you. 
How much worse if someone defrauds you? Now, you have to remember, though, Corinth is a very competitive city. You, you're, you come to Corinth to, to make a name for yourself, and your success is largely based on your reputation. And so someone insults you? Well, you can't let that go. You think you're better than me? You, you think you can walk all over me? Don't you know who I am? I'll show you. Let's go to court. One theologian says this. He said, lawsuits were a Corinthian sport. It's a sport. You see, you, you wouldn't even just go to court in Corinth in order to get justice. Actually, you go to court in Corinth primarily to preserve your reputation. You go to court, you exercise all of your social influence, you, you hire the best orator to kind of argue your case, you, you pay off the judges or the jury, and you show them. You, you show them who's boss. You make sure they know that you're not to be messed with. You show them who you are. Which means, actually, this passage, I think, has a lot to speak to us. Because, look, you might not be thinking right now, that person down the aisle on the other side of the church here, you, you want to take to court with, but, but we have been in conflict with each other. And if you haven't, press in deeper, experience true Christian flourishing, and you'll notice that with that also comes conflict. And when that happens, you feel taken advantage of. You feel wronged. You feel like somehow they've attacked your self-worth. Now, you've experienced this, I'm sure, if you've ever had an argument that went something like this, right? You start off arguing about who left the cupboards open. Two minutes later, you're arguing about the way each of you are spending money. Five minutes after that, you're talking about the in-laws. And 15 minutes later, you're like, shoot, what were we arguing about? And you go, it doesn't actually matter. I'm going to win. I I I'm going to win this argument because this person across from me, needs to know that they are not going to walk all over me. This person needs to know that I'm important, I'm a big deal, and that they bend the knee to me. I'm in charge. That's what happens often when we are in conflict with each other. And so look, whether your, your conflict is great, you're actually thinking of going to court, or whether you just want to give someone a peace of mind, Paul says, okay, look, we have a new identity, and so that actually changes the way we deal with conflict amongst ourselves. So look at our first point, the exalted identity of the church. Verse 1, again, here it says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? See, Paul's saying, look, instead of taking our disputes to the court— why don't we try to handle them internally? And he actually gives the church two reasons why they can handle their disputes or should handle their arguments kind of amongst themselves. He says, first off, they're qualified to do so. They're qualified. Look, look at verse 2. Paul writes, Or do you not know 
that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? There will come a day when Christians will exercise judgment over the world. This is actually not the first time the Bible speaks of this. In the book of Matthew, Jesus writes about what this will look like. Matthew 19 says this, And Peter said in reply, he's talking to Jesus, See, Jesus, look, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man, that's Jesus' name for himself, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jesus also says, look, this is actually not only just for my apostles, this is actually going to be extended to all Christians. We will all rule with Jesus. So in the book of Revelation, we read this. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Then listen, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus says, look, when I return, I will open up the books of all that has been done. Everyone's misdoings, will be laid bare, and you will sit with me on my throne, and you will judge the wickedness of the world. And so Paul here, arguing from the greater to the lesser, says, look, if we can do that, if we can declare a verdict with such serious consequences as someone's eternal destiny, we can handle the smaller, trivial affairs that are taking place in our midst. He goes on, though. He says, in case you're not convinced of your qualifications— he says, we'll also judge angels. So verse 3 says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, we're not exactly sure what this will look like when we judge angels, but we do know this. When angels show up to people in the Bible, those people are terrified. They want to hide and run away. But something then happens when Jesus returns. It's, it's as though we are so certain of who God has made us to be. It's like when we're actually sitting with him on the throne. We realize we are kings and queens. And so when an angel appears before us, we no longer cower in fear. We actually rise up and have the ability, the confidence to actually judge them. And so Paul, again here, arguing from the greater to the lesser, says, look, if you'll judge eternal matters, can you also not judge matters here and now? Do you see, Christ City, we, we live into the future reality right now. We can judge each other. We're, we're, we're qualified to do so. So, so Paul, summarizing as, uh, this situation of the church, says this in verse 4. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Don't you see, church? There's wisdom amongst us. There are people who are incredibly wise and have great discernment who can help judge our conflict with each other. We don't have to go to the court. We're qualified. Now, 
I think it's very important that we set up some boundaries here of what Paul is not saying. Because the church has misunderstood, I believe, what Paul has said here and has abused this situation. I want to say two things. Two things Paul is not saying. First, Paul is not saying that the entire legal system should be put away with. Paul actually has a very high view of law and those who help uphold the law. So in the book of Romans, Paul will say this. Romans chapter 13, he writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Listen, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. See, Paul's saying that laws have actually been put in place. God institutes those laws through our governing authorities to actually push back darkness and evil. There will come a point later in Paul's life where Paul is actually being wrongly convicted. A bunch of Jews are trying to kill him because of a false accusation. And Paul says, hold on, I want to go to Caesar. You need to know something. I am a Roman citizen. And so I am protected by the laws of this land. Before you kill me, you let me stand trial before Caesar. So Paul believes that these laws are actually good. It's not that we can just be done away with all of these legal rules in our world. Secondly, though, and I think this is even more important for us to hear, Paul here is saying that the church can handle the affairs internally in matters of civil litigation. He is not saying the church should replace the courts in terms of criminal misconduct. The church has no business ever trying to hide abuse, sexual misconduct, embezzlement, theft. We we don't deal with those issues internally. We we bring those things to the legal authorities. Actually, let me go insofar as saying this. Look, if you see criminal activity amongst us, tell the police first, and then tell the church, and then bring it to the elders. We will not hide criminal misconduct amongst ourselves. But if there are disputes where there's been some miscommunication, where there's a failure to agree. Maybe someone said they'd do a job for someone and they're not getting paid their full amount or they're holding back something that they've promised. Well, then bring it to the church because we're qualified to handle those matters. But secondly, he also says we should do that in the church because we pursue a greater good. We pursue a greater good. Look at verse 4 again. 
Paul says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? That phrase, no standing in the church, can actually be translated those who are despised by the church. Paul, Paul is trying to say this, look, why are you bringing arguments before people who don't prioritize the same things we do? Why are you, why are you bringing your legal issues before people that you actually don't want anything to do with? He explains what that is in verse 5. He goes on, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? That, that language of brothers or that we are siblings, that, that's not a nickname for us. The Bible says that's actually our identity. We are brothers and sisters when, when Christ saved us, he adopted us into his family, and so we actually have a new family now that is greater than our biological family, and it's each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Hands up here if you have any siblings. Okay, mo most of us. Hands up if you're the oldest child. Okay, so you're like me, and you know that we're always right, but... For everyone else who's not an older child, you know that sometimes you fail to be enlightened, and so you argue with your other siblings, okay? Now, when that happens, what do you do? Well, you, you, eventually you try to resolve the issue, but, but sometimes you're, you're really in disagreement, and you, you have your issues with each other, and so you need to bring someone else in, okay? This is what you are not doing. You're not going next door to your neighbor and saying, hey, my brother and I, we're having an issue. Can you help solve this? No, normally, you, you bring in your parents, your mom and your dad, right? And then what, what happens then? Well, mom and dad, yes, they, they want wrongs to be righted, but that's not their ultimate priority. More than that, they want you to be reconciled. They want you to love each other again. They want you to have each other's back. In court, you don't seek reconciliation. You want to win. You want to make sure they pay. And they're not just going to pay for the wrong that they've done. They're going to pay for your legal fees. You want to crush them. You don't care how they feel. You want vengeance. Not peace. Listen to uh, the way one Supreme Court justice of the United States put it. He says this, I think this passage, so he's actually speaking about 1 Corinthians 6 here, I think this passage has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend should be sought before parties run off to the law court. I think we're too ready today to seek vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should also be slow to sue. You see, we're not adversaries. We're siblings. And so we can actually go about things in a way that we try to pursue a greater good, an, an eternal good, we can seek reconciliation between each other. We can try to help each other understand 
each other and, and the miscommunication. And, and we can not only right wrongs, we can help them forgive one another so that they can be one, so that they can be the body, so that they can serve each other and help equip each other as we continue to walk with Jesus together for forever. We're the church. We're the people of God. We've been made to be kings and queens, and so we're qualified to handle our issues and our conflict amongst ourselves. But we're also brothers and sisters. And so we can also seek a greater good. Now, as optimistic as I am and as experienced as I am to know that often reconciliation is accomplished, I know there are times when one or both parties will dig in their heels and say, no, they've met with the church, the church has pointed some wise individuals, sometimes that's the elders. They said, hey, this is based on hearing your story, how we think you should best proceed. Maybe if you would just pay this amount, it would be fair. And someone says, no, I'm, I'm not okay with that. Well, the question is then, what do you do then? And the answer is, if you really want to get paid, then you go to court. And so Paul says, okay, hold on. Before you go to court, though, would you consider secondly, this is our second point, the exalted identity of Christ? Look at verses 5 to 8. Paul says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before the unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong? Sorry, why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You see, going to court in Corinth was a very public affair. Uh, we think of court and we think of courthouses and they're kind of, you know, indoors, maybe a couple friends or family members are showing up, if that. Well, in Corinth, the courthouse was actually in the public square. It's in downtown Corinth. It's where life is going on. See, see, lawsuits weren't just a Corinthian sport. They were actually a spectator sport. This is what you want to go and watch if you want to have a good time. You want to see two parties beat each other up. You want to see two parties, one try to preserve their name, and the other try to drag that person through the mud. And so Paul says, hey, look, Kay, if that's going to be what happens, if that's specifically what he says unbelievers are going to witness, would you consider what you're communicating about Jesus? E even more so, would you consider what you're miscommunicating about Jesus? He says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You, you go to court because you believe that the court will give you justice. And, and justice is right and good. That, that's how our legal system ought to operate, and we should be thankful for that that it functions in terms of black and white, of wrong and good, and that it executes justice appropriately. 
But we as Christians think that there's more to the story than justice. Yes, we want justice, but we also long for grace. And the court can't give us that. But in Jesus, you see, we see both. In Jesus, we see someone who suffered wrongly because he was the only sinless one. But he chose to suffer wrongly so that we who actually deserve to suffer might be forgiven. In Jesus, we see someone who was defrauded. They they robbed the life of the eternal one. And he allowed that to happen so that we who deserve to die might actually experience everlasting life. The world, please hear this, the world needs to know that there is more than a courthouse. The world needs to know that there is also a cross. It's on the cross, you see, where we have both justice and grace. They coexist there because Jesus, yes, he suffered the penalty for wrong. Wrong was not swept under the rug. He paid for the penalty, but he paid for the penalty of others so that others might experience grace and mercy, so that others might achieve what they had no business receiving. And so Paul asks, look, if you go to court, I just want to know, is is the world going to see that? Is the non-Christian going to be able to see that you believe in more than just justice? Will they see that Jesus has offered to pay the wrong of their sin? Will they see that, yes, suffering must occur for sin, but will they see that someone else can actually suffer on their behalf? Will they see that grace has been offered to them? Will they see actually who Jesus is? So Paul says, look, maybe it's better to just be defrauded. Maybe we should just suffer wrong then. And so look, Paul here is writing to Christians who are arguing with Christians, but this might actually apply to us in dealing with our unbelieving friends and neighbors. We we might actually say that we've been wrong, but we will absorb that wrong so that they might get a glimpse of Jesus in us. We might choose instead to prioritize the reputation of Christ rather than our rights. Do you see how great Jesus is and how much of an opportunity we have to show the world who he is when we're wronged? Lastly, then, I'll say this quickly. We also see the exalted identity of the Christian. If we're honest, this is easy to say, hard to do. Right? Like, it's easy to say, hey, the church is is qualified to handle disputes internally. We can say, hey, look, we have an opportunity to show Jesus to the world, but to actually forgive is hard. There's some serious wrongs that we have experienced, and to actually forgive them is hard. You see, forgiveness is costly. Someone has to pay. We just decide who. Either they pay for it, we gossip about them, we slander their name, we cut them out of our lives, we we take them to court, or we just heap on guilt and shame onto them for what they've done. We make them pay, or we pay. We take a hit to our reputation, 
We absorb the hurt. We suffer the financial loss. And so Paul says, hey, there's something, though, that empowers you to do this. There's actually a reason you can forgive. He says it's because we don't have anything to lose. We actually don't have anything to lose. We're going to look at these texts next week, but I just want you to see it because I think it helps Paul really hit home what he's trying to communicate here. Look at verses 9 to 11. Paul says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the adulterers, nor uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Do you see that our identity is secure? We, we were once those things. We were once living in sin, and yet despite that, God chose to save us. Please hear me. Nothing you do can take away your security in Christ, and nothing someone else does to you can take away your identity in Christ. If you've been financially wronged, you need to know that your eternal security is not at all compromised. If your name has been slandered, you need to know that your self-worth does not change. If you've been relationally wronged, you need to know that your heavenly Father still loves you still and your family is not going anywhere. If you appear weak, you need to know that God fights for those who are weak, and he'll save us from death. For the Christian, our identity is rock solid. And where we were wrong, then we don't have to fight to preserve our name. So, Christian, let me actually tell you what's written on that scroll. Let me tell you who you are. Let this affect the way you live your life. Let me read this from J.I. Packer. He says this, Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? Hear this. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home, and every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother, and every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over again to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus and any time your mind is free, and ask God that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of the Christian life of a God-honoring life. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother, and every Christian is my brother too. Heavenly Father, instill that deep into our hearts and into our minds. God, you know and you see the hurt that we've experienced. God, you suffered in the person of Jesus. And so, of course, you know what it feels like. 
God, we thank you, though, that because of Jesus, there is no ultimate consequence to being wronged because he was wronged in our place. Father, I pray, help us. Help us to display who you are to this watching world. Give us the wisdom we need, Lord, to handle our disputes in and amongst ourselves. And we pray, God, that you would be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.